So, this is the final one. Um, so, uh, uh, let me just remind you what the puzzle from the opening lecture was. Um, so, um, it was four claims that seemed inconsistent. The first one said, uh, at any time, a person's highest that a person has a highest level epistemic norm that constitutes the person's standards of rational formation and retention of beliefs at that time. The second said that assuming this is true, it's not possible for the person to rationally revise the highest level norm under any conditions. I mean, I, I guess kind of less, less formally, the idea of the first two is that there are rational constraints that govern how we form and revise our views and um, these rational constraints can't rationally change because if they could rationally change they wouldn't be constraints or something like that Um, okay and then the third was that uh, uh, essentially these uh, rational constraints should include a logic and the fourth was that however logic is rationally revisable so we have an inconsistency here uh I, I think claim three was pretty much supported by the second lecture, uh, or so I claimed, and I claimed that the third and fourth lectures pretty much supported claim four. So the issue is uh, the first two claims. Um, and I sketched prima facie arguments for those claims uh, in the opening lecture, but uh, you know I, I said at the time that I didn't take these entirely seriously, uh, and um, so the idea of today's lecture is to look at those more carefully. So my view is that claim, the first claim is questionable, and I'll say a little bit about that. But I want to put my uh, put my main emphasis on claim two. Um, and the prima facie argument I gave in the opening lecture for claim two looked a little better than the one for claim one. So. Um, it's kind of interesting if claim two is, a, is, is the primary problem. Um, now, I, um, I mentioned last time that the idea of a person's epistemic norms is ambiguous, uh, even when the norm its, n- notion of norm itself uh, is, is understood univocally. So it could mean the epistemic norm that the person is committed to, it could mean the epistemic norm that the person employs in making epistemic evaluations, and it could mean the epistemic norms that he employs in forming and retaining belief. Um, so my claim is that in any of these senses, a person's norms are subject to rational change, no matter how little the norm may be. But um, I think it's in the third sense that is the most controversial that there could be rational change. So that's going to be my ultimate focus. Um, however, I don't think you can entirely separate the third sense from the other two because I think that the usual dynamics for change of norm in the third sense will involve changes in the other two as well. Now, let me also clarify a little more the idea of a of a person's norm in this third sense that is the norm employed in uh, in uh, in the person's epistemic practice Um, so I'm taking norms or at least 
the ones that are best candidates for being unchangeable as uh, policies or rules of some kind. But they aren't the kind of policies or rules that the agent needs to have explicitly written in his head. Uh, There is a familiar regress about that in that we need policies or rules for processing the internal representations. Um, So rather, the kind of policies or rules in question are those that are uh, implicit in the person's practice. So what does this amount to? Well, to attribute an epistemic policy or rule of this sort is to give an idealized description of how the person forms and alters beliefs. And there's a bunch of reasons why we shouldn't expect there to be a best idealized description. Um, One of them, and and the one I would put the most emphasis on, is that there are different degrees of idealization. Um, So, for instance, some idealizations take more account of memory limitation or or computational limitations than others do. Um, uh, Also, even within a given uh, level of idealization, there, I think there can be multiple good idealized descriptions at that level. Uh, and, and this is because, because since a description at a given highly idealized level only connects loosely with the actual facts, there is no reason to think it will be uniquely determined by the actual facts. So for both of the reasons that I've just mentioned, there are multiple candidates for the best idealization of our epistemic behavior. Uh, And any such idealization counts any factors that it doesn't take into account as non-rational. So insofar as the idealization is, is a good one, then it's appropriate to take the factors it doesn't take into account as non-rational. But the lack of a uniquely best candidate for one's basic rule is largely due to a lack of a uniquely best division between the rational and the non-rational factors. Now, this doesn't itself go against the idea of a highest level norm guiding our behavior. And in fact, in some ways, it, it, it makes it um, less implausible that there be such a highest level. Uh, so, um, since in attributing norms one is idealizing, the issue of a highest level norm ought to be viewed as the issue of whether a good idealization will postulate a highest level norm. And uh, so, each, each good idealization postulating a highest level norm is compatible with different idealizations postulating different highest level norms. Um, so I think that that, that um, the idea that, that there are different highest level norms postulated by different idealizations does something to remove some of the prima facie impossibility of the idea of a highest level norm governing our behavior. Um, but still, the question remains, why should we believe that the best idealization uh, or, or idealizations will uh, 
posit a highest level norm. And um, so in an article I wrote some years back, I gave what seemed to me at the time to be a reason for this. Um, um, and it's sort of like the one that I, I gave in the opening lecture, which I warned you wasn't a very good argument. So, so here, just a quote from my past self. Uh, so the alternative to an idealization that postulates the highest level norm is an idealization that postulates multiple norms, each accessible using the others. But there's an obvious weakness in an idealization of this alternative sort. It's completely uninformative about what the agent does when the norms conflict. There is, in fact, some process that the agent will use to deal with such conflicts. Because this conflict-breaking process is such an important part of how the agent operates, it's natural to consider it part of a norm that the agent is following. If so, it would seem to be included in a basic or highest-level norm with the multiple norms, really just default norms that operate only when they don't come into conflict with other default norms. Of course, the process of resolving conflicts provided by this basic norm needn't be deterministic, and as stressed before, there need be no, Euclid, no, need be no uniquely best candidate for what the highest norm, uh, higher norm that governs the conflict resolution is. But what seems to be the case is that idealizations that posit a basic norm are more informative than those that don't. All right, well, as I hinted, uh, it's hard for me now to see the force in this. And I think there's two problems. Um, the first, probably the most obvious one, is that since there are different degrees of idealization, why shouldn't the process that decides the conflict among norms at one degree of idealization be excluded from those norms, but included in a norm of lower degree of idealization that is one that takes more account of computational structure. Um, so I don't know what I was thinking, actually, when I uh, gave that argument, because that problem doesn't seem kind of obvious. And, and another problem, which in some ways I think... Well, uh, 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 Another problem is that I, I don't think I was uh, taking my own uh, views entirely seriously because because there it seems to me that there's a problem in going from the claim that the resolution-breaking process is intuitively rational to the claim that the resolution-breaking process is included in the agent's norms. Now, I'm not going to go into this second problem here. It's closely related to the main argument that I'm going to find uh, sorry, closely related to the main problem I'm going to find with the argument for the uh, second claim, the uh, rational unrevisability claim. Uh, so for that reason, I'm not going to go in, in into it. It's not needed because problem one is enough to make uh, claim one unobvious, and also I want to put the main stress here on claim two anyway, rather than... So, on to claim two. So, claim two, remind you, is that if a person is guided by a highest level epistemic norm, then it isn't possible for her to rationally revise it under any conditions. And 
and here I gave a little bit more of an argument in the first lecture, and it was these three claims A through C. So, first one is rational revision requires the use of a norm, uh, namely a norm that declares the revision rational. Secondly, if the rational revision of a norm that one employs went by the use of some norm other than that one, then that one couldn't be a highest level norm that one is employing. And the third one was no norm can dictate its own revision. Now, I'm going to try to sketch a believable account of norm change that gets around this argument. Uh, Which premises does it undermine? Well, perhaps all of them, in fact. There are certain ambiguities in them, um, and uh, so I'm not sure any of the premises are entirely free of blame, but I would say that most of the blame lies with the first one, claim A. Um, So that's the one I'm going to stress. But I will begin by discussing the last one, claim C here, that no norm can dictate its own revision. Okay, um, now I hinted last time that um, the typical mode of rational change in the norms one employs in forming and retaining beliefs intuitively seems to be a two-stage affair. So in stage one, we keep the norms that we employ in forming and retaining beliefs constant, and doing so, we modify the norms that one is committed to uh, and or the norms that one employs in evaluations. I mean, basically, the norms that one advocates get changed. And then stage two is you then bring the norms that you employ in forming and retaining beliefs into line with these new commitments uh, or these new evaluations. So, so, so first you revise your theory about what norm is a good one, and then you use the revision of your theory about what norm is a good one to actually change the norms that you employ in practice. I mean, that seems intuitively uh, how most such changes are going to work. Now, the third claim, uh, claim C, remember, was that no, no norm that an agent could follow can dictate its own revision. And the thought behind it was, how could any norms or any ones that an agent could follow tell us to revise themselves? Wouldn't following these norms require not following them? And this seems incoherent, or at least to make following the rule impossible. Now, I think there does seem to be a problem here, but it seems to be a problem only in stage two. So this thought, what I've called the thought behind it, C, um, uh, raises no obvious problem for the use of norm to undermine itself in the sense of stage one. Now, there is, in fact, an additional worry about uh, uh, stage one, but I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that one. But the first point is that is that we have a two-stage process, and it looks like uh, the no norm dictating its own revision is really only applicable to the second of the two stages. All right, 
well, the first part of this just fills this out a little bit. Um, so the thought behind C doesn't rule out that by following a highest level norm, and we could rationally be led to conclude that we shouldn't be following N and should instead be following an alternative N star. That's stage one. It only tells us that N wouldn't then dictate switching from N to N star. That's stage two, or the switch proper. So, but now even stage two doesn't mean that we wouldn't make the switch. It only means that in making it, we wouldn't be following norm N. And it also doesn't mean that we wouldn't be rational in making the switch. All it means is that were we to rationally make the switch, then the rationality wouldn't be explained by its being in accordance with norm N. It would be explained in some other way. Um, so I, I, I'm agreeing that the argument for C does show that there's no hope of explaining the rationality of stage two by means of the norm n. So what, what, what could explain the rationality of stage two? Well, um, that brings back the alternatives A and B here. Um, so, so one suggestion is that the rationality of the switch at stage two is explained by its being in accordance with some other norm. So that is uh, denying claim B of the original argument. Um, but in the original lecture, I objected to that by saying, well, well, that doesn't fit with the hypothesis that N is the highest level norm. But, um, or the highest level one that I'm following. Um, but here I think we need to be a little more careful. Um, so the clear truth behind B is that If on a certain degree of idealization of my behavior, N is the highest level norm that I'm following, then the rationality of switching from N to N star uh, can't be explained by its being in accordance with any norm that I'm following in making the switch, or at least not any that I'm following according to the degree of idealization in question. So, uh, if other norms are relevant to the rationality of the switch proper, they must either be norms at some different level of idealization or norms that I wasn't following at all. Well, it's, it's not out of the question to try to explain the rationality of the switch proper in uh, either of these ways, in, uh, using norms at a different level of idealization or even norms that I, what, uh, I'm not following at all. For instance, uh, well, anyway, let me not pursue that further because what I think is the better thing to say is that we don't need to invoke norms at all to explain the rationality of the switch proper. So, um, on the question of, of the rationality of the switch proper, that is stage two, I'll take A to be the main culprit. A, remember, was that rational revision requires the use of a norm that declares the revision rational. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be saying rational revision doesn't require the use of a norm at all. 
Um, all right, so that's what I'm going to say about stage two. But before I do this, I'm going to uh, digress onto stage one of the switch, where I'm also going to argue that uh, stage A needn't be assumed. That is, um, that uh, rational revision doesn't require the use of a of a norm. Um, all right, let's see. This is a little repetitious here, I think. So, um, so to repeat, the thought behind the third premise of this argument was that um, that that thought doesn't do anything to rule out our using our most fundamental norm at the preliminary stage, uh, stage one, but. But something else might rule this out. Um, that is, it, it might rule out the possibility of following one highest level norm and concluding on its basis that one should be following a different one. So here's where there's a standard discussion of um, what are called immodest inductive methods, uh, David Lewis's term. And the uh, so the combination of Lewis's papers on this seem to show that every inductive method is going to predict that it will do better than all alternatives to it will. And so there, so, so even putting aside the issue of the switch proper, no, no inductive method could even argue that uh, some other method is better. Um, now I think these results are overstated Um, first of all attempts to prove that every method declares itself better than all others are based on simplistic one dimensional criteria of what's good in a method and secondly um, as a number of people have argued recently including Frank um, um even 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 given the criteria for what's good, the arguments depend on controversial measures of closeness to the good. So Alan Gibbard showed that alternative measures to closeness do not yield the result that all methods declare themselves best. Um, still, <clears throat> it's hard to take a whole lot of comfort from this, I think, because the alternative measures of closeness on which not every method declares itself best, they seem to be ones on which the only methods that do declare themselves best are exceptionally bad ones. So I don't, I think if you go through the stuff, I think there's no reason to think that there is a way to spell out a criterion of uh, betterness in method that um, on which most methods that ought to come out bad will declare themselves to be bad, but on which methods that ought to come out good will declare themselves to be good. So the upshot of this, uh, uh, sorry, I'm quickly, I, I'm kind of alluding to stuff I haven't talked about, so. 
uh, this might be a little hard, hard to follow, but but the upshot of, of it is that is that is that while I agree that the problem of immodesty is overstated, there there does seem to be a deep underlying problem with the idea that rational debate between consistent advocates of alternative inductive methods would lead to the better method leading out, uh, out, winning out over the worse one. And I think it's fairly plausible to extend this beyond inductive methods to highest level norms more generally. So it looks like there's a problem here of rational change even as to what the norms advocated are. Well, um, I, I want to say there isn't. Um, and so before we talk about rational change of norms, even, even rational change in what norms one advocates, we should talk about rational debate about norms. Because um, I think... Uh, Rational change in norm emanates from rational debate about it, norms. So, so, so I have, I already had stage one and stage two. Now I'm going to go to a still earlier stage, stage zero, um, uh, stage of rational debate about norms. And so here, I want to say that to get a model for how debate about any deeply entrenched belief or norm proceeds, it's important not to rely on an idealization according to which um, agents are logically omniscient. So actual agents, of course, don't see all the consequences of their beliefs, policies, and preferences. Um, The failure of logical closure leads also to many unrecognized inconsistencies. Um, and in the previous lecture, I talked about the cognitive state of an agent is represented by a pure component that consists of some probability measure on a set of worlds and uh, a normative com- component that consists either of a precise norm or a weighting of norms or something like that. Um, now, I think this is an acceptable idealization in circumstances where inconsistencies play no role. But in contexts where inconsistencies do play an important role, I think it, it, it blinds us to how rational debate proceeds. So I, I kind of hinted uh, this in, I guess it was lecture two, um, and I said there that in the case of pure belief, that is um, a, a, a belief unmixed by valuation, um, we should, instead of adopting a probability measure as basic, we should suppose that any time an agent has a certain body of core doxastic attitudes towards non-evaluative claims. Um, there, rather than being degrees of belief, there is something like constraints on degrees of belief. I mean, the exact form of them, um, uh, well, I think there's probably a lot of different forms of that. So, for instance, uh, 
believing, uh, having degrees of belief according to which two claims are independent of each other, having upper and lower bounds on on the degrees of belief, things like this. These are the sort of the the psychologically basic things. Um, this set of attitudes won't be deductively closed or or closed under probabilistic consequence uh, because there's uh, lots of things like um, uh, complicated logical truths that one hasn't contemplated that one won't have any degree of belief in at all. Um, And uh, because one doesn't have deductive closure, one's also likely to get inconsistencies. I mean, um, um, and of course, as people do, they, they, they uh, believe things which are actually uh, logically impossible. Um, so, So it's these core constraints that are psychologically real. One might invent methods for assigning to an agent a set of probability functions that represents the belief state. Uh, The rough idea here would be to take the agent's uh, 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 belief state to be the set of probability functions that satisfy sufficiently many of the core attitudes but it isn't satisfactory. It isn't clear how to how one would satisfactorily work out the details of this. And also, I, I, I think the result would probably just obscure important features of rational debate more than it would illuminate them, because I think the core attitudes are what are important to the rational debate. So. And I want to say basically the same thing for the impure doxastic attitude. So that is these, the, the, the belief in the extended sense where, where, where the valuations enter into what one believes. Um, uh, you can extend what I've said either directly or indirectly. Um, uh, let's see, I think I won't bother to go through that. Um, uh, but either way you do it, the, the, the uh, set of attitudes won't be deductively closed or consistent. And again, one can invent methods for assigning to an agent uh, subjective measures on the worlds and norms. Um, but again, an understanding of the dynamics of, of the of the uh, impure belief states is better achieved without this. The reason, as in the case of the pure attitudes, is that is that the measures are kind of an epiphenomenon. The real work goes on at the level of the uh, uh, the explicitly represented uh, things about individual beliefs. Um, so if 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 the core attitudes were consistent and evolved in accord with the very demanding picture of idealized rationality, 
then the measures would evolve in a smooth way that could be described without the mention of the underlying core. But since the core attitudes aren't even consistent, the evolution of the measures won't be characterizable without reference to the underlying core. That's, that's the picture. Um, so, so I don't have any detailed account of how these inconsistent cores evolve, but, um, but I don't think I need one to see how the picture opens up the possibility for rational and debate. I mean, the point, I think, is pretty clear. In debate, whether normative or non-normative, in fact, one consciously or unconsciously exploits inconsistencies and other tensions in the other person's views. So, uh, that holds even for non-normative debate, uh, and in normative debate, it's even more true because there are more kinds of inconsistencies that you can generate here. Um, so, be a little more concrete. In, in, in convincing somebody of a claim, we typically argue to it from things the person explicitly accepts and other things he can easily be brought to accept. So the person might resist the argument by questioning some of the claims used in it, even ones previously accepted, but a good arguer is then likely to find other ways to argue for the claim from things that the person accepts. And with enough such argument, the person is likely to be persuaded to alter his views and accept the claim. Uh, If the person had debated somebody else, he might well have been led to resolve the inconsistency in his views by uh, 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 screwed up here, by um, uh, 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 rejecting that claim and, and altering some of the other views. So the process of revision that exploits these inconsistencies can lead to fundamental change in both the pure and the impure core attitudes. Um, uh, In the case where it alters the impure attitudes, then if the overall change is important enough, it will constitute a change in the norm advocated. Uh, um, I mean, which norm one advocates is determined by which norm provides the best fit for one's uh, inconsistent set of, of impure attitudes. Um, okay, so that's a matter of how rational debate proceeds. It it proceeds by exploiting inconsistencies. Um, But now now let's get to the issue of stage one. That is, uh, under what conditions will a change in view 
in particular a change that the norm one advocates, uh, under what conditions will such a change in view produced by rational debate be rational? Well, um, it's important to realize here that, 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 that rational debate can, of course, lead a person to replace a better view by a worse one. I, I mean, um, you know, um, there can be plausible-looking arguments for wrong conclusions. So when that's... When that happens, um, uh, which are the cases where the change is rational and which are the cases where it isn't? Well, so there are cases of this sort where I'd be inclined to call the change uh, rational. I mean, primarily these are cases where the argument is extraordinarily compelling and the resultant position isn't a whole lot worse than the one it replaced. There's also other cases where I'd be much less inclined to call it rational. Primarily, these are cases where the faulty norm is much worse than what it replaced and where the convinced party may have had some grounds for suspicious. And there are cases where I think there are conflicting inclinations. Um, Like, if you have a highly persuasive but faulty argument for adopting a statistical procedure that in fact is deeply flawed. So, but I've been talking about what I'd be inclined to say. You might say, well, and, and, and enough about me. I mean, who, who, who cares what I'm inclined to say? What's at issue is what is rational. And uh, don't we need a theory of when such changes are rational and when they aren't that it will decide this kind of case. Well, what I say is that is that this we, we, we would need such a theory if we had what I was calling the dipstick model of, uh, of a epistemology uh, which I had talked about last time. So this is the picture on which um, we 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 need to know how much epistemic fluid is produced by a persuasive but faulty argument and how much epistemic fluid is then pumped out by the uh, by any rational intuitions against the conclusion and we then use our 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 epistemology meter to to Determine how much is left and whether this is enough to make the um, the change rational. But the view I was proposing last time is that is that is there simply nothing objective here to measure? To call a change rational is to express a certain kind of approval of it. And approval and disapproval are multifaceted. Um, so, in the kind of case what I was talking about, I mean, um, so so I see that Jones's initial statistical procedure, before being convinced by Smith's incorrect argument to change it, uh, I see that 
the initial procedure was a good one, and uh, suppose I, I know how Smith's argument went wrong, but suppose I also see the apparent power of Smith's argument um, uh, to anybody not immersed in the subtle issues uh, in philosophy of statistics. So in this case, I will positively evaluate Jones's intellectual honesty in following out reasoning that seems persuasive and being willing to revise his work in light of this. And, and I, I, I minimize the fact that he erred because the fallacies involved were subtle. At the same time, the costs of employing the faulty statistical procedures may be fairly high, so I think there's also something negative about Jones's conversion. Now, why think there's anything more than this that needs to be said? Why think there needs to be a single standard of reasonableness and that these two factors need to be weighed against each other? Um, so, in this situation, I should, I should regard Jones as in an unsatisfactory overall creedal state, but weighing each belief in the state on its own and, and on a single scale is pointless. And uh, so I can just say, well, there are some reasonable aspects to the change and some unreasonable ones. And the question of whether the change is overall reasonable or not just uh, has no clear answer. So, um, so rational change, even as to the norms one advocates, it needn't be entirely norm-driven. It's driven by this kind of debate that works by um, exploiting the inconsistencies uh, in a person's view. Um, To the extent that the change is norm-driven, it didn't go entirely by a consistent use of one's highest level norm, supposing there to be such a thing. Failures of logical closure and of consistency play a crucial role. So, in the argument for the claim that uh, a claim to that is the claim that. Um, uh, if there's a fundamental norm, it can't rationally change. Um, the first assumption that rational change requires the use of a norm that declares the revision rational, that's incorrect even for the first stage of the revision process. That is, the stage concerning which norms to advocate. And as far as the second stage, I want to say basically the same sort of thing. Um, so the usual way to change the norms that guide one is to first come to advocate new ones and to then train ourselves to act or reason in terms of them. Now, suppose we've already come to advocate norms other than the ones we're using, um, when when is it rational to then switch our norm to accord with what we've advocated? 
Well, again, I, I take this not to be a straightforwardly factual question. It's rather a question of evaluation, and um, the evaluation might go in different cases. There, there just aren't any general rules here. So, so there are cases where I'd be more inclined to evaluate the advocacy of a change in norms as uh, rational than to evaluate um, the actual change of norms as as rational. Uh, so, I mean, uh, um, cases where a person is seduced by persuasive arguments or skepticism, um, the the, the uh, they're actually switching to skeptical norms would be a disaster. So, one is is inclined to uh, uh, think the actual change would not be uh, rational, even if one takes a more lenient attitude towards uh, the change in what they advocate. Um, there are also cases where a person can change the norms that guides him not as a result of rational argument for changing the norms, but in some other way. Um, for instance, uh, the change in the guiding norm um, might be due to a change in the advocated norm, but the change in which norms one advocates wouldn't be due to rational debate, but 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 to a change in preference. I mean, uh, certain changes in preferences about um, your inductive policies might. Uh, sorry, certain changes in in. Uh, preferences like a preference for might come to change the properties you want to have in an inductive policy and this might lead you to alter which inductive policies you advocate which might in turn lead you to alter your inductive policy Um, so in these cases too I'd um, I'd probably count the change as rational if the new guiding norm is far superior to the old one. But again, there's really no issue that's worthy of debate in these cases. It's, it, it's simply a matter of evaluation, uh, not of metaphysical fact. So, um, so in 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 summary, I think that here too, in the case of stage two as well. The assumption that rational change requires the use of a norm that declares the revision rational is just incorrect. Okay, so so what I've tried to do here on claim two is to argue that um, the argument for rational unrevisability of a norm. Um, depends on the assumption that rational change is norm-driven, and we shouldn't accept this uh, uh, assumption. And um, part of why we shouldn't is that it, 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 it relies on this uh, uh, 
epistemological realism about uh, rationality. Okay, so let me just quickly end with a few slides that debate, that relate this discussion to the particular kind of uh, change that I've focused on in these lectures, um, which involve um, change of logic. So let's just take a example of the kind that I've talked about. So let's suppose that in phase one, Jones has some norm which allows reasoning in accordance with classical logic together with what I call the inter-substitutivity principle. That is the the, inter, the equivalence of uh, uh, true of A to A. Um, so his because of the paradoxes, this person's norms are just inconsistent. I mean, uh, they're trivial, they imply everything. So that's phase one. Phase two, Joe has shown the inconsistency or figures it out for himself. And let's suppose that his, after thinking about it for a while and maybe reading some stuff about it, he decides that he should adopt a gap theory or uh, the details don't matter. Suppose it's a theory that keeps to classical logic, gives up the inter-substitutivity principle. So his, his, uh, his uh, norms are no longer uh, trivial. I mean, uh, uh, suppose that that he he learns to operate with this uh, system, so he now has consistent norms. But let's say that in phase three, he thinks about it more, um, and he and he he becomes uh, unhappy with the with the restrictions on the inter-substitutivity principle. Um, so this leads him to think that the way he went wasn't the best way to go. He should have kept the equivalence of true of A to A while weakening the logic in a certain way. And he, again, learns to do this. So so this is another shift in the basic norms of reasoning. So how do these shifts happen? Well, typically, I think the process starts by rational debate. Um, I mean, here... I guess I'm, I'm using debate in an expanded sense. It, it needn't be debate with somebody else. It, it could be he just kind of has an internal debate uh, with his own self. Um, so um, on the first shift in norm, where where he switched from a trivial norm to something else. Uh, that's pretty easy to motivate uh, because a norm that the original norm was uh, 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 trivial, that is, it led to uh, any possible conclusion, and that's not very useful. 
But how does the person settle on a consistent replacement? Well, typically, one's going to look at the different replacements one thinks of or is told about, and will think as best as one can about their consequences and what it's like to live with them. And on this basis makes a choice. Uh, the details will depend on happenstance and on the agent's psychology. The choice won't be made by one's earlier norm, because that was uh, trivial after all. Um, so it may be guided by portions of the trivial norm, but different portions could have ruled differently. Uh, very likely the final transition won't be based on any process that is deterministic at the psychological level. Okay, so what, what, what makes the change rational or irrational? Well, the general moral of the earlier discussion was there really isn't no, no hidden fact here to find out. I mean, we'll, in, in this case, we'll mostly be inclined to call it rational to the extent that we approve of the process that led to it, uh, and also, to some extent, our judgment of the view itself will enter in as well. Um, and the situation is similar for the second shift in norm say from a consistent gap theory in classical logic to a consistent view that retains intersubstitutivity in a non-classical logic such a shift is likely to be produced by tensions within one's belief state uh, um, that is, by consequences of one's view that one isn't happy with. So these consequences can lead one to try out an alternative theory. For instance, we may notice that many of the standard paradoxes result from first deriving a claim of form A, if and only if not A, and then using classical logic to conclude that that's equivalent to it is not the case that A, if and only if A, which one then uh, 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 has to reject. Um, so one thinks, well, hmm, maybe we should somehow figure out some way to alter the logic so that A, if and only if not A, doesn't imply it is not the case that A, if and only if A. Um, so we think about what this would involve, um, also, not all of the paradoxes turn on that, so we have to think about um, uh, generalizing to accommodate um, the other paradoxes. Uh, and, you know, we look at different attempts to get a general theory, notice their limitations, try to improve on them, notice the costs, and so forth. Uh, and, um, um, so the change won't be simply a product of the prior norm because it's inconsistent with that norm. Uh, and again, whether and when one makes the change is a matter of individual psychology and it's probably not governed by deterministic laws at the psychological level. So on the... This is the last slide. Um, on the 
On the question of when the change is rational, we consider several things. I mean, we look at the details of the process that led to the revision. Uh, did the person think carefully through the difficulties with the old norms and what's involved in using the new ones and so forth? And we make our own judgment of the merits of the norms he ended up with. And from these, we make a kind of multifaceted evaluation of the ways in which we approve and the ways in which we don't approve. Okay, well, this is all, this is all very common sense, I think. The, the, the important point is that that's all there is to it. I mean, these, uh, 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 banalities exhaust the topic. There is no, factual question about rationality that's been left out.